You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to continue through the book of James this week. And uh, last week we were in James 3, where we learned about godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And... Uh, James is coming alongside a group of believers that are suffering. There's persecution going on. There's all kinds of trials that they're facing. And not unlike some of what we get to face here in America today, but also around the world. And he wants believers to see how these things are all opportunities to evidence faith and what it looks like. And Jesus calls us to examine ourselves for genuine faith by considering our own lives. And and our lives, they reflect, they give evidence to what we really believe. We've been talking about that week in and week out because James is constantly pointing us back to that in his book. And so this week, Joe, when he preached, was... uh, pretty much a precursor to what the passage that we're going to be in this week. What it looks like to to step specifically the wisdom that's needed to be at peace amongst each other as God's people. And he basically prepared the way for the rebuke that James is going to give us in his word this week. And it's... um, It's going to bring to light all the ways that our hearts are involved in not helpful ways in our relationships. And so, whether it's through our worldly conflicts, our quarrels that take place amongst us as a church family, amongst us as earthly families, whatever relationships we have. And so I want us to step into that this morning. And if you have access to God's Word... Please look with me at at James 4, verses 1 through 12, as I read that for us this morning. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Think of the words conflict, argument, quarrel, fight. What kind of emotions, what kind of thoughts, what kind of memories do those words stir up inside of you? Because every one of us experiences those, don't we? Some of us, it, it might make us want to go and hide somewhere. To just get away to the safest place possible. Others of us may cause our heart to race faster and faster. It may get our adrenaline pumping. It may even get our, our fists clenched and bring it on. Well, I'm a conflict avoider. So those words stir in me the desire to do my turtle imitation. And that's get in my shell, just hide, maybe every once in a while, poke my head out. Is it safe to come out yet? Pull back in if it's not. And wait till the dust settles. Wait till the, it's safe to come out. And my wife, on the other hand, she is of Italian descent, came from a different family heritage, <laughs> and um, she embraces conflict. And in many ways, I admire that. She's the type of person that says the things that I'm thinking and, and has the courage to say it. And so uh, you can imagine what 32 years of marital conflict has looked like between me as a conflict avoider and my wife as a conflict embracer, I'll call her. Uh, the dance that we've done. And many times it's not a pretty one. And it's interesting because we were warned about that. The, the pastor that did our premarital counseling, he said straight out, hey, you're going to have conflict. But remember, conflict is good. And me as a conflict avoider was like, no way can conflict be good. I mean, it's good if you can avoid it. <laughs> but there, there's, how can this be good? And so it just seemed crazy to me because I spent most of my life trying to avoid conflict. And so as we stepped into marriage, his words became true. Because what it, it taught me is that in the midst of conflict, my wife and I had the opportunity to experience a trust, a truthfulness, the ability to experience intimacy as we move through that conflict, because it exposes what's in our hearts. And if you're married, you know that marriage in particular gets you up close and personal in each other's lives. And so it became a grace. And it continues to be a grace to us because we desperately need to have our hearts exposed. 
to how good God is, even in the midst of something as uncomfortable as conflict. And so, if you're listening today and you're not a Christian, so glad you're here. You get to sit in on a, a family conversation of sorts. And you get to, I hope that in the midst of it, you see not only that, that we who call ourselves Christians are, are very messed up, but we have a God who doesn't leave us in that mess. A God who, who will, even though we're fighting amongst ourselves, we have a God who has fought for us. And he comes in with his grace, even in the midst of these hearts of ours, and exposes what we absolutely need. And so we're going to look at this war, our war in relationships that flows from our heart's self-centered desires. When we allow our sin, when we allow our worldly passions to rule our desires, it will cause wars in our relationship with God and with each other. James starts out, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? He answers it for us. That your passions are at war within you. James begins here talking about the war that's going on amongst believers. That war that results from the passions and the desires that are going on inside of their own hearts. Driven by the world and their worldliness. And James is making a very general reference to the, the fights and the quarrels that are going on in the church. And he's addressing them point blank. And he wants to expose this. These fights and, and quarrels are something that's going on inside of them. And it's not necessarily about winning arguments being right or wrong and having that pointed out. It's about what's going on there in our hearts in the midst of those fights and those quarrels. So think about the conflicts, the fights in your own life. And if James were to come to you and, he's, and he were to ask you this question, what, what causes the quarrels and the fights in your life? Isn't our natural response, well, it's, it's the person that ticked me off, right? Or the popular phrase, the devil made me do it. Or, you know, they're just obnoxious and annoying. So I need to respond to that. Or I don't like what they're doing, so I'm going to step into it. And we blame some outside force, some outside person, the person we're engaged with, but James is saying, no, point the finger at yourself. That you're the problem. That you're the source of the sinfulness that's at work in that conflict. And James says, you're the cause. And so, we need to understand that the passions brewing within us a conflict just gives an opportunity for that to come out. Whether it's through frustration, through anger, maybe it's because we want to have power. We want to have a position of influence. 
and they're frustrating that. Maybe we want approval, and we're not getting it from that person. But we see them approve of somebody else, and so we envy. And we want to punish them. Either it's through our own angry words, attacking them, or if you're like me, it's a passive-aggressive approach. You turn and you become distant. You withhold your love. You give them the cold shoulder. You avoid them. No difference from a heart level. And so notice that it's not the issues that are the source of the problem. It's our hearts that are the source of the problem. The desires and passions that are at war within each of us. The Greek word here for passion means pleasure. It's the same word that we get hedonism from. And so it's the same, same language that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Self-centered desires cause these people to make war against each other. And here the, the, the word war, it's a, it's a metaphor for the traumatic effect of sinful hostility. When you think of war, what's, what's the goal of war? It's to win, right? And to control. The winner gets to control the loser, right? And so you can see when you take that metaphor into relationships, and especially in a conflict, if your goal is to win, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to lose. If your goal is to control, somebody's going to be controlled. And do we deserve that spot as the winner and the controller in the relationships around us? James says no. That's, there's, a, there's this inner war within every believer because of our desires. And, the, and that war is between our desire to serve Christ and our neighbor versus our desire to serve ourselves. Every single day there's an inner war between your desire to serve Christ and your neighbor versus your desire to serve you and your own kingdom. Look at verse 2 here. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See, a believer's desire and covetness is attached to James 3.14, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which leads to this terrible fighting. This internal war of desires leads to an external war. These conflicts break out in the church. They break out in families. They break out in all kinds of relationships. And James says, he uses very strong language, doesn't he? You desire and do not have, so you murder. And that could, that could refer to actual physical violence, right? We see that all the time in the news. 
in a broader perspective, the New Testament uses that kind of language. When you look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he uses the word murder in this way. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said that those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But here's what Jesus says. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, see the connection to James? Is, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, here's words, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's talking about our words used to murder somebody and their reputation, that relationship. And James is pointing to the same thing, these fights that we have in our homes or in our church with our eternal family begin with these selfish desires and they don't have a connection to a biblical cause, a righteous anger. And so James says we fight because our passions are selfish. They're sinful. They disorder our lives. And these passions lack emotional control. They lack the control of the Holy Spirit. And so our appetite for control, our appetite for whatever is causing the conflict. It might be somebody getting in the way of something we want. And it might not even be a bad desire. But since they got in the way, we're going to demand it. We're going to fight them to get them out of the way so that we can get what we want. It might be their approval. It might be because we think they're doing the wrong thing. And so we're going to attack them ungraciously. Or maybe it's some pleasure that we're seeking. And they're in the way of it. We want to satisfy ourselves with selfish things, worldly things. And so how are worldly sinful desires leading us to manipulate in our relationships? How are they leading us to cut down with our words or our actions to hurt someone, to get them out of the way? James goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You want to spend it on your passions. James is pointing to another evidence of our worldly ways, and that's to pray less or to pray wrongly. And it's actually, the irony is, in these moments when we pray less, we actually need to pray the most, don't we? God, stop me from doing what my flesh wants to do. These passions that are rising up within me, stop me. Prayerlessness is a sign that we are trying to run things in our own strength, isn't it? We become prayerless. Prayerlessness arises from our sense of independence from God. I'm going to be God. And so... Instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. We pursue them. 
apart from God, rather than trusting in our Heavenly Father who delights in giving us good things, we decide to go and seek and gain it our own way, independently, selfishly, when we should ask God for what we need, rather than fighting to get what we want. Bring in our request before God, who has this purifying influence on us. So James is admonishing believers to stop being so self-focused, to pray, and to know that their desires need to become worthy in the face of God and, and transformed in His face. And so think about the last argument you had with somebody, the last conflict that you had. How much prayer was involved before you opened your mouth and let your heart out? Be honest. I know what my answer is. Zero. So James is teaching us the value of prayer and rebukes those prayers that are with impure motives. Those when we focus on seeking our own self-satisfying passions instead of honoring God and advancing His kingdom purposes. And so, how many of our prayers focus just enough to make ourselves look spiritual or feel spiritual, yet don't reveal our true heart's motives? Like we, we give a, a, a courtesy prayer, but we don't really expose our heart's motives to God because we're still going to chase after what's motivating us and what we're passionate about. How many of our prayers treat Jesus, treat God as if he's some kind of restaurant server? Hey, Jesus, come here. Come here. I'm ready to put in my order. Hey, Jesus, uh, let's see, today I'd like uh, a, a conflict-free day, please, uh, with a side of comfort, a massive quantity of approval, and, oh, by the way, can you come in and, and, and take care of this big project that I've been trying to do in my own strength? It's due tomorrow, so since it's due tomorrow and I'm under the gun, can you help me now? And then, when Jesus doesn't bring it to us quick enough, or we don't like how it's prepared and delivered, we get frustrated with him. We doubt how much he cares. That's what James is talking about. We're treating God as if he's some kind of restaurant server. We ask with wrong motives. And so... Many times our conflicts will spiral out of control because we've either stopped praying or we're praying with wrong motives. And again, it goes back to our hearts. Shoving in our desires when we should be inviting in God's heart. Why would God answer the prayer of a believer who wants to live like the enemy of Christ? Why would God do that? 
And that's what James is pointing us to here. When we live as a friend of this world, we are waging war against God. Our desires are spiritually adulterous because we violate our covenant as Jesus' bride, the church, with Jesus as our husband. James, this is the most, in my mind, the most convicting, the most pointed verse in the book of James. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Strong words, isn't it? And who is he talking to? He's talking to us. You adulterous people. James, you adulterous man. Put your name in there. James is saying that our worldly passions are really waging war against God. The Old Testament prophets use this language in describing Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And so James is bringing it in here that people know exactly what he's talking about. So think about what your friendship with the world looks like in relationship to God. And what does friendship with the world mean? It's loving the world's beliefs. It's loving the world's pleasures more than you love God. The list is long, isn't it? Of the things that we chase after every day. That's the war, isn't it? That's going on inside of all of us. John Calvin says... Our sinful hearts are idol-making factories. Wouldn't you love to just blow up that factory? But every single day, that's the direction that my heart naturally wants to go in. And, And James isn't pulling any punches here because they are wandering far from God and they're setting themselves up against God. And that's a dangerous place to be. And it's evidenced by their judgmental words, their worldliness, their selfish ambitions, their adulterous hearts. And that's our daily reality. There's a cosmic war going on inside of us. In what we're chasing after. A war for the control of our hearts whether it's to be controlled by God or to be controlled by Satan and his lies and the power that he has in this world. And so our own hearts are the battleground and we're not passive spectators in this. We are not passive. We are active, aren't we, in our decisions, in what we love. And so... 
As a friend of the world, we become God's enemy who is believing Satan's lies and living in adultery. And if you profess yourself to be a believer in Jesus Christ, who are you married to? Who are you a bride of? Jesus Christ. Jesus is your husband, and you are his bride. So you can understand the language of adultery here. And I know some of you have experienced adultery firsthand. Whether it's in your own marriage, or maybe it's a secondary effect, your parents' marriage, or maybe your grandparents' marriage. I'm sorry. You know firsthand the pain. You know firsthand what it causes when there is unfaithfulness in this God-designed marriage relationship. I'm sorry. But I pray that God would use that in your life Like James is wanting to point these people back to God. As a redeeming, as only God can do, gracious thing. That you wouldn't take that woundedness and allow it to drive you into sin. But out of that woundedness, accept God's invitation to draw near to Him. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But you know firsthand from your own experience that adultery isn't something you just wink at and step away. That spiritual adultery is not something that God just winks at. Imagine a man who who wins a woman away from an abusive boyfriend. And they develop a relationship, and they eventually get married. And after they're married, this woman comes to her husband and says, Hey, you know, I, I absolutely love our marriage. I love everything that you've brought into my life. Um, but I, I, I really have feelings for my ex-abusive boyfriend, and, and, and so I'm going to pursue that relationship too, because I still have these feelings. Sound okay? No. Right? No way. But isn't that the picture, spiritually speaking, that James is painting for us? To chase after these wrong desires, these worldly desires, then he moves into this in verse 5. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is a difficult verse to translate. Since James is, is he's painting with broad strokes. He's not quoting a specific scripture, but he's laying out a broad message for us and, and 
And so James's concern here and longing is that for these believers, they've lost their way. They're indulging in sinfulness. And, and they're wandering away from the Lord. And that God, if you see this throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, God is a jealous God. And He yearns. His love for us is amazing. His, his jealousy is different than ours. His jealousy is pure and holy. Uh, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate it, and this is, this is what I came up with. Uh, imagine... You guys all being at Tony and I's wedding ceremony back in 1988. Now, I know many of you weren't even alive then. <laughs> but just imagine, okay? Tony and I are up front, face-to-face, holding hands, and, and we actually wrote our vows. So we spoke our vows to each other. And think about if... if if at the end of my vows I said something like this, Tony, I promise to love you more than all the other women that I love in my life. Yeah, she would go ninja. <laughs> Rightly so. And it would be appropriate, wouldn't it? Because that is not what marriage is, is it? That's not what... A covenant relationship is. It's not honoring that. And that's the kind of jealous love. It's just a, a fragment of the kind of jealous love that God has for us. Because He has created us to love Him, to worship Him. He has designed and, and paved the way for us to love Him, wholly devoted to Him. And so, he has redeemed us for that. And he deserves our worship. He deserves our friendship, doesn't he? And so we, in our sinful rebellion, we've earned judgment. We've, we've earned eternity in hell. But Jesus is king, and he's judge, and we are his. And one day, in his jealous, protecting, promise-keeping love, he'll judge Satan. He'll judge his demons and all the people that are his enemies. And he will establish his forever kingdom. And we'll get to participate in that, fully protected, fully enjoying his unbelievable love. That's how jealousy is for us as his people. And so... Where is your allegiance this morning? Who is your friend? Who is your enemy? If you say you love God, that means you need to hate your sin. And you need to hate the lies of the enemy. And that's where James turns us here. And this, this is the most redeeming phrase and in, in verse in, in this whole section. Verse 6. Um, and, but he gives more grace. So even when we are caught in our adultery, God offers us grace. And how do we gain that grace? How do we get it lavished upon us? 
through humble repentance and submission to him, declaring war on our sin and on Satan. Even when we're caught in our adultery. That's what God offers us. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is linking up with 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 here. God opposes means he resists. He casts judgment upon. There's no trick or secret here to this war. The grace that is found in the gospel, according to James, here is the only answer. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has already done on our behalf. It's all about what God has done. He gives more grace. We deserve his holy wrath against our sinfulness. But yet he comes and meets us and he gives us more grace to cover our sin, to cover our rebellion. And then it goes on to show us what this looks like. How do we live out grace in our lives? How do we evidence grace in our lives that, that helps us in these conflicts, in the ways that we blow up relationships? Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What does it mean to submit? What does it mean? In the Greek, it means to, submitting means to place yourself underneath, to arrange your life underneath their authority. It means humility. It means obedience rather than rebellion. Submission to God means that the believer is surrendered to God's will. Embrace Jesus' rule in his or her life. That's submission. And the beauty of it is, it's the most powerful form of resistance against our enemy, the devil. If you want to resist the devil, submit yourself to God. And out of that, you gain the grace and the power to fight your sin, to kill your sin. And there's nothing greater that can upset the devil's schemes than our willing, joyful submission to God. Nothing. Submission to God helps us fight against the temptation of sin. It's the only strength that we actually have, and it comes from God. As we submit to God, we by definition resist the devil. Don't miss that. Because sin puts up a fight, doesn't it? The devil has been up to his antics, his rebellion, his en enmity with God for thousands of years. He's good at it. And we can't stand against him in our own strength. No way, no how. Each one of us can testify to that when we try and stand against temptation on our own. But there's incredibly good news in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you 
that is not common to man. Listen to this. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Why? But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Such good news, isn't it? Every temptation, there's a way of escape. Being a friend of God is what's absolutely essential to finding that way. Verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. This verse, studying it over the past few weeks, God is one of the many graces to me. Thank you for the opportunity to preach today. God taught me so much through this studying. And one of the, the, the amazing things that He showed to me is I'd, I'd like to pull this verse out like in a proof text almost kind of way. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. But I left out the repentance part very conveniently. And James says our drawing near to God here is in turning back to God in repentance. Turning back to God in repentance because we've moved away from him in our own selfishness, in our own sinfulness, in our own adulterous love for the world's wisdoms, world's wisdom. And so think of Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son. Remember the climactic moment in that story when this sinful young man comes to his senses, realizes how far he's wandered and where it's brought him? Listen to Luke 15, 20 to 24. It's an amazing picture of God's passionate desire to draw us to himself, no matter how far away we've moved in our sin. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And here's the language of drawing near, God drawing near. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a great picture of what God offers us in his grace. None of you are too far gone that the Father will not meet you in repentance. James isn't taking anything away from God as the initiator here. Because throughout the Bible, God is always the one making the first move towards us. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. He's our king. 
He's the forgiver of our sins. And James wants us to believe that even in drifting into our sin, into rebellion, into these fights, that God eagerly welcomes us back into his loving embrace, embrace again and again, no matter how many times, how far away, he welcomes us back to restore us as a bride, as a dearly loved child. What good news. And so, look at verses 8 and 9 here. James continues to instruct us in the way of repentance, in the way of godly grief that draws us close to him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's he talking about there? Stop being happy, be, be mad, be sad, right? Not exactly the, the type of language we like to, to consider these days, right? In the days of, of positivity and, and whatnot. But James is wanting them to see He's using Old Testament language that they would have understood. This language that they used in purifying themselves, in purifying sacrifices, making them clean, making sure they're clean as they brought them to God. And so the laughter he describes here is a laughter because they have taken a casual view of their sin. In a sense, they're laughing about it, writing it off. James says, don't do that. When we have a laughing attitude towards our sin, what are we believing? We believe sin's no big deal, right? When we laugh at it, when we, when we just sweep it aside. We believe that it didn't cost much. James is saying, don't do that. It is only when we agree with God as to how rebellious our sin is and how much it costs God and Jesus to offer us the cleansing power of forgiveness that we will grieve over the truth. That for us to draw close to God came at great cost to himself. That it was only through the sacrifice of his own son, his only son, that we can now draw close to him. That we get to humbly agree with God and confess our sin, that it is sin. And he is faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 When was the last time we shed tears over our sin? Whether it's our own sin or the sin of somebody that we dearly love. Or the sins of our own culture, our own world. I know for me, I don't don't grieve enough. One, over my own sin. I do a better job maybe grieving over somebody else's sin, especially if it affects me. Which is selfish in and of itself. But I confess that my own self-protective pride, that in that I I don't shed enough tears. Having a godly grief 
over my own sin, over the pain that my words have caused my wife, my kids, those I love. What about you? When was the last time that you were brokenhearted over sin? Over your own sinfulness? Do you believe that daily repentance is a grace from God? Repentance is an absolute grace. And that's what James is pointing us back to. Draw near to God in godly grieving. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Put your name in there, you double-minded. Through the amazing blood-bought grace... And then there's these words of wretchedness, mourning and weeping as a part of genuine faith's response to sin. Because God walks us humbly through the valley of repentance in order to take us to the mountaintop of how majestic our salvation is. How powerful God's word is to transform our hearts. With God, there is grace in the valley of repentance and there's grace on the mountaintop. Isaiah 66.2 says this, All these things in my hand, my hand has made. He's talking about God. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What do James' words in John 4 do to your heart this morning? Are you making excuses in your own mind or thinking about somebody else who you hope are, is either listening or would hear this? Or are you yourself trembling? Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't you see that humility before our good God is our entrance into his amazing kingdom? Humble yourselves, in verse 10 he says, before the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, we see this picture of grace that James is laying before us. What it looks like to submit ourselves to God, to humble ourselves And to be exalted. And it's actually something we can never do. But Jesus did it for us. We sang about it this morning. Philippians 2. Jesus stepped out of heaven. The biggest step of humility. Bigger than any step we'll take. He humbled himself. He has spoken the perfect words of wisdom over us from above. He's demonstrated for us how completely submitted he's been to the Father by going to the cross, laying down his own perfect life, 
Jesus didn't live adulterously, did he? He lived perfectly. He resisted the devil every single time to give his perfect sinless life in our place, dying the death we deserve, to cleanse us from our sins, to purify our hearts with his pure and perfect life, with his heavenly wisdom, and he's been raised from the dead. He conquered the friends of the world. He conquered Satan, sin, and death. So that now we can draw near to God. What good news. And so, James ends with these words that show us that we must humbly and very carefully speak our words regarding each other because Jesus has spoken a better word over us in our sin. Genuine submission to God and repentance of our sin will be lived out in how we speak and how we act about each other. And specifically, how we'll speak about others within ourselves. Because many of the words that we speak never come out of our mouths. But we're speaking them inside of us. Or how we speak to others to their face. Or how we speak to others to others. About others. James says in verse 11, Do not speak of evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother and judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. James is showing us how godly repentance is practically lived out in our horizontal relationships. By telling us not to slander one another, not to speak evil about each other in our own hearts, to their faces, or about them to other people. Between our judgmental, prideful hearts and our sinfulness, finding faults in other people is an easy target, isn't it? We don't have to look far. And sometimes it is like good to see somebody's life and put God's word up against it and recognize, oh, that's bad. I'm not going to follow that. Or I need to pray for them. I need to approach them. Right? That type of judgment where we've gotten a log out of our own eye to see the speck in someone else's eye. But James is talking about us stepping on the law using our worldly tongues that are so untamed and so untamable to run others over. It's so instinctive, we hardly realize we're doing it. But to train ourselves humbly, to be gracious in what we say, and to not speak evil. And what's the law that James is referring to here? It's the law of love, right? The law that Jesus speaks about, how we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. How we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how we're to order our lives in such a way that how we speak and how we care for each other manifests that love. 
that type of love. Instead of thinking we're exempt from that, so we can say whatever we want and be judgmental. That we think we know better than God does. And we sit in judgment over God's law of love, deciding if and when and how it comes into play and how we speak to others or how we act towards others. And so James's audience would have been very familiar with this language. From Leviticus 19, it says, You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, for you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. James is warning us not to speak against the law because of our lack of love, because we're actually speaking against God. And so we're stepping back into the original sin in the garden. When Adam and Eve didn't hold up what God said, and they spoke against it. They didn't walk it out. And verse 12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So when we cast sinful judgment on people, we are not only rejecting God, but we are replacing him. We are appointing ourselves as the lawgiver and the judge. Rejecting Jesus is the only one who is able to save. James, strong words. Brothers and sisters, how we treat others reflects our view of who God is. It reflects the attitude of our hearts that God alone has the right to show us how to speak. How to love others. How to live with others. Only Jesus can judge rightly. Only Jesus can save or destroy, not us. And our treatment of others is transformed through submission to him, through us living out the law of love, not being motivated by our selfish hearts. And so we must order our hearts underneath the incredible truth that we are ruled by and saved by God alone. Psalm, 19, or Psalm 9, 19 and 20 says this, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but man. We are but man. There's a God who rules the nations. He's already evidenced that. Brothers and sisters, take to heart James's words this morning. We are in a war. We are in a war. We need to know in a war, you know who your friends are. In a war, you know who the enemies are. 
Your words testify to whose side you're on. Your actions. The cross shows us whose side Christ is on. For us, the sinner, the repentant sinner, we're all in a daily struggle and it's reflected in the wars of our heart. And we absolutely need what James is telling us today. There's no mysterious secret weapon. We need to repent daily and chase after God's wisdom. It's sin and Satan's temptations that are our enemies. And it's sin that we need to kill. It's not our friend. And we need to work together to kill it. Because it shows that we together are friends of God to an onlooking world that we love God and it is the grace that he gives us that transforms our desire to obey him and to, to reflect that to each other's lives. We need to look for ways to build each other up in the faith, submitting together to God, coming near to him together, holding out the gospel to each other, surrendering the war of rebellious, sinful words, because Jesus has already been cursed on our behalf. He has taken the guilt, the shame of our sinful hearts by his own blood. His blood has washed us clean. He has been judged on our behalf. Now we are free to love because in Jesus we are so deeply loved by God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. And in many ways, they're very difficult because they expose, if we're willing, our own hearts. And Jesus, I thank and praise you that you have spoken a better word over us that invites us to be cleansed by you, to be purified by you, to be single-minded in you. To draw near to you, even in the midst of repentance and a grief over our sin. How amazing it is, your finished work of the cross. How amazing it is that we get to gather around it this morning to sit under the weight of it in a way that can transform how we minister and care for each other, how we reflect your glory to each other and to this world. May our hearts be so enthralled with your love as we sing about it now together. In Jesus' name, amen.